0: Chapter 9, verse 1. Now when these things had been completed, the leaders approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the local residents or the people of the land, who practice detestable things similar to those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Indeed they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so the holy race has become intermingled with the local residents. Worse still, the leaders and the officials have been at the forefront of all this. It is reported to Ezra that after only being there for three to four months, it is reported to him that people are intermarrying. They have intermarried with the people of the land, people from this Samaria district, who were not necessarily 100% Jewish. They say two things about them. First, they've married people outside the land of Judah, the people of the land that we saw constantly resisting them in the first way. And second, that they practiced the practices, the detestable practices of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and all those kind of people. These are what's pointed out to them. Now, it's very unlikely after four months, Ezra's like, "Ah, oh, I just realized they've intermarried with each other. This is news to me. I didn't know this the entire time. It seems from Ezra's conduct and from the context that he already knows this right off the bat. But instead of rebuking them, and telling them that they're wrong because that doesn't go over really well when you're like you just arrived somewhere and everybody's been living there for a long time and then you come in and you're like hey I'm the new guy and the new leader oh by the way you're all sinning okay that doesn't go over well it doesn't go over well when you know people really well we don't like being confronted Ezra is very wise here because what he probably was doing and we get this sense later from the context was teaching the law to them every single day for four months. And he was teaching them about morality and expectations. And he waited for them to feel the conviction of being intermarried and come forth to, before him. And this is a much more successful way. rather than. And I'm not saying that you should never ever rebuke anybody because Jesus obviously commands us to go and rebuke our brother if we find them in sin and that kind of stuff. But he also did not give that command in a one size fits all, go to their face and confront them right off the bat every single time, no matter what, the minute you figure it all out. Okay, remember, Jesus told us to rebuke your brothers in sin, but he also gave us a whole Bible, tons of stories of how that should be done in a godly way. And he even said, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We're not to be going around willy-nilly just doing things because some law says you're sinning. Ezra takes a very wise route. He just teaches He just teaches us. Rather than pointing the bony prophet finger in their face and telling them they sinned, which there is a time for that, like Nathan with David, he merely just taught the law and waited for them to be convicted. Now, if they never ever got convicted, I probably likely he would step in and confront them. But he waited. He gave them the chance to move on their own. Because people who feel conviction... And come forth in repentance, that's going to last longer and be more genuine than people who are forced to repent. I mean, you've seen it with my daughters. Where it's like, we've learned you do not go one and say, now you tell them you're sorry. That, okay, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> that's not a good attitude. Hey, a lot of times we'll just send them away. And put them in timeout, let them calm down, and then go into them and then have a conversation about what was going on with them. How did they think it was, made their sister feel? That kind of stuff. Sort of try to process through and try to invoke their memory of their love for their sister and how they wouldn't like being treated that way. And then they're more likely to have a more genuine apology. And yeah, sometimes it's still forced a little bit, but they're little girls. But at least it's not just you do this because you have to. And there is something to just drawing them out in a relationship, walking them through what love is and what, how they wrong people to help them come to the point where they realize, yeah, I didn't actually want my sister to feel that way now that I think about it. And that presents a more genuine, long-lasting conviction, repentance, and transformation. And this is what he allows for. When I heard this report, I tore my tunic and my robe and ripped out some of my hair from my head and beard. And then I sat down, quiet, devastated, and everyone who held the words of God of Israel in awe gathered around me because of the unfaithful acts of the people of exile. Devastated, I continued to sit there until the evening offering. So he then didn't, once again, he didn't go in. He just mourned. He taught the law for several months. They came to him into this sin. Then he sat down, he began to fast and mourn, and he allowed people to gather around him in mourning. He didn't command them to mourn with him. He just set the example. Ezra is a great example of leading by example, rather than telling people what to do. What is going on here? Because Ezra's ultimate conclusion is going to force all these people into a mass community divorce. And that really goes contrary to the character of God and many laws in the Bible. And so we're going to take the time to break this down because this is a multi-layered complex issue that we're going to deal with. So the first question is, what's going on? On the surface, it sounds like that marrying foreigners is what is wrong. But they also say they've practiced the detestable practices of the Canaanites. On the foreigners thing, is obvious, and we've already talked about this multiple times, that God has never forbidden the marriage of foreigners. He has invited foreigners into the nation over and over again. You are allowed to marry foreigners on the condition that they convert to Judaism, embrace the Abrahamic covenant, and commit themselves to a life of faith and repentance. If they do that, then you're allowed to marry the foreigners. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, these are examples of many others. Uriah the Hittite, Ittite the Gittite, Arana the Jebusite, all these people throughout the Bible. It can't be just that they've married foreigners, right? Maybe. Don't know yet. They say they've practiced the practices of the, the Canaanites. It's clear that they haven't married Canaanites and Hittites because these people don't really exist anymore, and a massive amount of people to just label them as a group of people. Nor does it really tell us what the detestable practices are. When people are committed in idolatry, the Bible goes goes out of its way to talk about that idolatry. Not once is idolatry ever mentioned in this passage. Not once is them bringing idols into this passage ever mentioned. And so all we have is the word of the people speaking to Ezra, and they say they're practicing the detestable practices of the Canaanites. Is that true? We don't know. Why does the narrator or God not ever mention the idolatry? It's never been afraid to mention idolatry when it's there. It makes sure that you know that it's idolatry when it's there. All we have is the word of these people giving the report. And we all know that we can't trust the word of everybody in the Bible. Just because they're in the Bible doesn't mean we believe them. Like when the spies come back and they're like, there's giants in the land, we can't take the land. That God's not saying, amen, brother, that's in the Bible, they're right. He, he's just re- merely reporting what they said. What's going on? They obviously believe that there's some immoral violation of the law in the practices of these women. Okay, or they would not bring that up. It is very interesting the Bible doesn't detail what those practices are, but they are seeing something that has convinced them that this is not biblical, this is not godly, what these women are doing, and they've brought these practices into their marriages with these Jewish men. Malachi chapter 2 verse 11, that addresses this time period, says that this may be true of some of the women. It could be possible that these men, few of these men, have married some women who are practicing pagan acts, and they have brought them into the land of Judah, and that there are other Jewish men who have married other foreigners who are not practicing these pagan acts, but yet these leaders have lumped them all together. And we know that that's human nature. We know that we we tend to do that. If we see a group and there's a few people in the group doing something, we tend to say they're all doing it, or they're all like that, or they're and they may be doing that. Malachi chapter two verse eleven, as the prophet does not specifically say that this is actually an accurate report of every single Jewish man and their wife, that this may be true. Of some of them, therefore, the others are being lumped in with it. Ezra is going to focus mostly on the marriage of foreign women. Ezra himself never points out any idolatrous practices. He himself doesn't even point out any detestable practices in any kind of way. The men keep saying marrying foreign women. Ezra keeps saying marrying foreign women. Ezra keeps saying that they've brought other people in. They seem to be focusing on this more than anything else, which suggests to us that they're seeing this as the sin. They've misapplied Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. He cites it, but when he cites Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, he saw it as forbidding mixed marriages. This passage in Deuteronomy 7 makes it clear that you're not to intermarry with the Canaanites because of their idolatry. It never ever says you're not to marry the Canaanites because they're Canaanites. It says you're not to intermarry with the Canaanites because of their idolatry. Ezra, when he cites it, only cites the part that talks about marriage of foreign women. This seems to be what he's focusing on. It seems also that they've taken the law of Leviticus 19.19 19 of not mixing two things that are not the same together. God forbid that you mix two fabrics like cotton and linen together because that was to symbolically represent that they remain distinct from the Gentiles. They were not allowed to mix clean and unclean animals together because that would symbolically represent the fact that they remained distinct from the Gentiles. Yet these laws were to keep them from intermixing with the Gentiles because the Gentiles were all idolaters. We're now in a time period where the Gentiles north of them also have Jewish roots and Jewish influence, and they've intermarried with Jewish people who could be completely loyal to Yahweh, and the idolatry is no longer there. So we're dealing with a completely different culture, completely different circumstances, yet they focus on the intermixing. Intermixing, intermarriage is what they keep saying over and over and over again. Ezra is an expert in the law, but he may have mixed the laws of separation with Deuteronomy 7 and completely forbidden all intermarriages, regardless of faith, repentance, repentance, or cultural practices in any way. We know that that's a strong possibility because this is the beginning of that belief. This belief is gonna grow and grow and grow in Israel to the point that when we get to Jesus' time period, the Israelites want nothing to do with Gentiles. They literally have stopped witnessing to them. They believe them completely unredeemable altogether. This is the beginning of those roots. And we talked about this last week. They're so scared of going back into exile again that they don't ever want to do that again, that they're going to go in extremes. They know that marrying foreign women who are idolaters or foreign men who are idolaters is what brought the idolatry in the land, which was allowed to sin into the land, which allowed exile. Now they're coming back, and they're so scared of that happening again that they might have gone to the extreme black and white view that no foreigners at all. We know that that is a view in Israel. When that begins to grow is not completely clear, but it seems to be from this passage starting here with Ezra. Not that Ezra is the first one to come up with this idea, but that he's going to deepen this entrenched view. Here's the other thing. This complicates matters even more. Malachi chapter 2 Verses 10-16 through also says that some of these Jewish men had divorced their Jewish wives in order to marry the foreign women. So they're already guilty of divorce to begin with. So they had Jewish wives already. Not all the Jewish men, but some of them already had Jewish wives. They saw the foreign women, and they intentionally divorced their Jewish wives in order to marry the foreign women. Why isn't that being pointed out in Ezra? This Once again, the idea of intermarrying has become more important to them than the idea of what these men have already done previously. This shows that they have no regard for their previous co- covenants. They have no regard for covenants at all. If they're willing to violate a one covenant in order to make another covenant, then this means anything. So when they come forth and say, we should divorce our wives, that's not probably a big deal for some of them. If they've already violated one covenant divorced divorce their wives to remarry others, then when they come to Ezra and say, Hey, I be, feel convicted by God that we should divorce these wives, that's not a big deal for them. Not a big deal for them. If you do it once, it's not hard to do it again. How many women are involved? This does not mean that no Jewish women had intermarried with foreign men. I know the emphasis is all on the men marrying foreign women, but there's no reference to foreign Jewish women marrying foreign men. Why? Because, not saying that there was that, but if there was that, the Jewish women, when they marry foreign women, men, they would have left their families and gone off into the foreign land to live with the men. So they're not in the land anymore. So they're not going to influence Judah. What they're afraid of is pagan practices coming to Judah, corrupting corrupting the people of Judah. So if the women have married foreign men, they're going to go back to the foreign land with their husbands and live there, which means they're not living in Judah to corrupt it. So that's not an issue here. The issue is the men who've taken foreign women and brought them to their land and now live among the people. So this is most likely why only one sex is being emphasized as the violators of the law. What is not mentioned, and what bothers many scholars, including me, is nowhere does Ezra ever mention the detestable practices that are being done. Nowhere is it ever mentioned that they're actually worshiping idols. Nowhere are we told how many men have exactly done this. We're not told about the previous divorces that they went through. We're not even told how many have converted to Judaism as a result of being married to a Jewish man. Everything is viewed exactly the same, and everyone is treated exactly the same. My big problem with this is is that Ezra and the leaders who have taken his example have lumped everybody into the exact same scenario. We're going to find out later that there are uh, lots of people Who are going to get divorced as a result of this? I have a hard time believing that every single family was exactly the same case, that every single person had an idolatrous wife who was worshiping detestable practices, all that kind of stuff. There is no talk about conversion. There's no talk about exceptions. There's no talk about why this woman is here, what her faith is. None of that. Ruth is not lumped in with all the Moabite women and treated the same. She's treated by an individual by God for her faith or lack of faith. Rahab, Tamar are not lumped in. God never ever lumps people into massive groups when they're coming into Israel. He deals with them one by one. Ezra seems to be mostly concerned with the intermarriage. That's his primary focus as he does all this. Verse 5. At the time of the evening offering, I got up from my self-abasement with my tunic and robe and torn, and then dropped to my knees and spread my hands to Yahweh my God. I prayed, O oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, O oh my God, for our iniquities have climbed higher than our heads, and our guilt exceeds, extends the heavens from the days of our fathers until this very day of our guilt has been great because of our iniquities we we along with our kings and the priests have been delivered over by the local kings to the sword captivity plunder and embarrassment right up to the present time but now Briefly, we have received mercy from Yahweh our God, in that He has left us a remnant and has given us a secure position in His holy place. Thus, our God has enlightened our eyes and has given us a little relief in our time of servitude. Although we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our servitude. He has extended kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, and that He has revived us to restore the temple of our God and to raise up its ruins and to give us a protective wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, what are we able to say after this, our God? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded us through your servants and the prophets with these words, The land that you are entering to possess is a land defiled by the impurities of the local residents. With their abominations, they have filled it up from one end to the other with their filthiness. Therefore do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, and do not take their daughters in marriage for your sons. Do not ever seek their peace or welfare, so that you may be strong and may eat the good of the land, that you may leave it as an inheritance for your good children forever. Everything that has happened to us has come about because of our wicked actions and our great guilt. Even so, our God, you have exercised restraint toward our iniquities and have given us a remnant such as this. Shall we once again break your commandments and intermarry with these abominable peoples? Would you not be so angered by us that you would wipe us out and no survivor or remnant? O Yahweh, God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant this day. Indeed, we stand before you in our guilt. However, because of his guilt, no one can really stand before you. Now, just like Daniel, Ezra puts himself in the place of the people and prays for forgiveness for his sins, our sins. Even though he has not committed this sin, he identifies with the people as their priests. The job of a priest is to bear the burdens of the people to bear the wit and the sins of the people and he does that as he prays and he acknowledges that god has taken them in exile because of sins like this and brought them back and asked for god to protect them when he calls himself a slave they're not exactly slaves they're slaves in the sense that they're not self-ruling themselves they are um they're not they're, they don't have a self rule they're being ruled by the persian emperor and so that's what he means here